This is Lives of Adventure, and I'm your host, Jeff Gardner. I'm back after a few weeks' hiatus to bring you the story of another adventurer. Today's guest is someone who's very well known in the worlds of adventure racing and ultra running, but who, I have to admit, I'd never actually heard of before one of my previous guests, Kevin Tobin, introduced me to him. Harold Zundel is an amazingly interesting guy. He was born and raised in Germany and came to the U.S. for university, and actually during university ended up joining the U.S. Navy. And actually, this is potentially maybe the most baffling part of Harold's entire story to me at least, but early in his naval career, he somewhat accidentally decided to become a Navy SEAL, as if it's something that's just simple or easy, right? Years later, as Harold was finishing up with the Navy, he did his first adventure race on a team with several other SEALs. They won that race, and from that point on, Harold was hooked. Eventually, he would become a professional adventure racer, spending nearly eight years traveling and competing full-time before quitting the pro-life and actually endurance sports altogether for a few years. But more recently, Harold has gotten back into punishing, I mean challenging himself, by running extremely long-distance races like the Barkley Marathons, the Bigfoot 200, and the Ultra Trail du Mont Blanc. I had a really great time talking to Harold, and I was struck most by the understated and the humble way that he talks about his appetite for endurance and punishment, and how he talks about his achievements. He spent his entire life testing his own boundaries, and apparently, he hasn't yet found them. So before I pull a Hollywood movie trailer on you and totally spoil the show, let's get right into my conversation with Harold Zundel. So, Harold, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me, Jeff. Um, so I'm going to start somewhere maybe potentially obvious. Uh, to a lot of people in the running and kind of adventure race circles, you're known just as the German. Uh, and so I'm going to make kind of a leap there and assume that you're originally from Germany. Um, where did you grow up? And kind of uh, can you tell us a little bit about what that was like? Yeah, you're you're right. I did grow up, grow up in Germany um, in the... Frankfurt, about 30 miles north of Frankfurt, uh, middle central Germany. Born and raised there, went to German school, German educated. Uh, my mom is American, so that's how I um, had to <laughs> had to learn how to speak English because she forced me to, <laughs> like all good parents do. Right. Um, but um, yeah, it was great growing up there. Definitely a little bit different lifestyle uh, than here in the States. And so the transition when I came from Germany to, to America. The first couple of years was kind of hard, especially since I went to South Carolina. So that was a whole new uh, whole new society for me, so to speak. Yeah, I'd say that was a pretty different uh, place to be. <laughs> yeah, it was. Very cool. So Frankfurt, I, that's pretty, it's kind of flat country there, isn't it? So like, was the outdoors a big part of your childhood when you were growing up? Or is it something you kind of found a little bit later in life? Yeah, I always liked to be in the outdoors when I was younger. I don't know, back then, when I say this, I feel so old. It's like we didn't do much video games or being on a computer, and we spent a lot of time outdoors. So whether I was going to the swimming pool or going for a long hike to the lake and hang out at the lake, uh, windsurfing or paddling, or even just going for a run, you know, we, as, as kids, we did that a lot, just spending the time outdoors after school and not going home until it basically got dark and it was dinner time. 
Yeah, I've got some friends here actually in Italy that uh, have pretty much the exact same memories. And they're just like, yeah, we were thrown out the door just after breakfast and told to come back for dinner. And that was it. You know, it was like, <laughs> there was no like yeah. planned, you know, organized, organized, uh, you know, activities or anything like that. It was just like, get out of my hair, come back for dinner. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And uh, I kind of enjoyed it. That's what I knew. But, you know, so every day you could do whatever you wanted and come up with new ideas and talk to your friends and just go on an adventure. So it was a lot of flexibility in my childhood. And I think that's where I got my adventurous spirits. You know, I, I love to explore. I had a capability and my parents allowed me to explore. And so that, that stuck with me until now. That's a really interesting one. Actually, you know, I think, um, you know, there's a lot of articles about helicopter parenting and all the rest these days. And I, you know, I wonder what, like, and I don't know if you can properly answer this because you're kind of be, you know, you'll be the kid in the story and kind of thinking back about how your parents were thinking at that time. But, you know, did you, have you noticed like a really big change in that, uh, you know, feeling sentiment, that sort of thing? Like what, what was it about your parents that kind of allowed them to go? Oh, ah, yeah, he'll be fine. Uh, we'll just let him go out for the whole day. Um, I think there are a couple of things. One is that they both worked, they had full-time jobs, um, and financially, they weren't that well off. So, you know, they really couldn't afford a babysitter or anything. So it was kind of, their hand was kind of forced for me to be on my own without any like uh, babysitting supervision. Um, so in that sense, you know, they, they did trust me. They, uh, they started out with leaving me, you know, at the house by myself when I was seven, eight years old, um, you know, half an hour here, hour there, just giving me that, that feeling of, wow, they're, they're giving me responsibility and uh, they're trusting me. So I think they, they instilled in me a trust that, hey, they're leaving me alone and I don't want to break that trust. And I, I kind of grew up really fast that way, but uh, it really gave me, gave me a lot of independence. And my parents saw that I was able to handle myself on my own. I was able to make my own lunch, um, you know, take care of myself when I came back from school. Um, do my homework, be responsible, but then, you know, do whatever I want to do in the afternoon. And, uh, I'm, I'm really grateful for them, um, being that way. That's amazing. Actually. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I've got a four year old and I'm like trying to think of like what he'll be like in three years. And if I'd be like happy leaving him at home to like make his own meals and things, I can't say that I maybe would be, but I suppose I've got a couple of years to wait and see. Yeah, it's, it's it's kind of crazy looking back that I was able to do that. And I think I was interested in, in kind of like the household stuff too. I watched my mom cook and she let me help her. So I learned a lot of things from her and she realized early on, you know what, I, he can take care of himself. He, you know, he won't starve if he's left alone and yeah. um, it worked out well. That's great. That's cool. So what age were you when you uh, moved to South Carolina? I moved in 1989, so I was just 20 years old. Yeah. Okay, okay. So you, I mean, you literally grew up all of your childhood, uh, all the way through to kind of finishing secondary school. You did that all in Germany. Yes, I did. And I actually started um, like a uh, university type schooling in Germany, engineering school for one semester. And back then, um, well, it's all subsidized by the government, so it was free and which is good in one way, but in the other way, there were so many students. And if you weren't there 20 minutes before lecture time, you didn't have a seat in the class. So um, it was kind of stressful. Um, you know, it had to be really 
on time and diligent. And even when you were on time, you sometimes you couldn't make it into the classroom. And my grandparents uh, lived here in the States in South Carolina and uh, just talking to them, just said, hey, why don't you come over here and go to college here and then go from there, you know, go go do an adventure and we'll support you as much as we can and, you know, and see how it goes. And I took their advice and made a decision to go over here to South Carolina and go to college here. Wow, that's super cool. Um, was it, I mean, you know, you said already that it was a bit of a culture shock, uh, was kind of getting into university and kind of getting, uh, you know, immersed in that kind of very different university culture, uh, or I'm assuming it's very, it was very different. Um, was that really tough at the time or was it, you know, felt like university, maybe a little less busy, but, uh, it was more the outside of university kind of culture stuff that was, was very different. Yeah, it was kind of both. <laughs> and and coming coming to the US, I, I didn't do any research. I didn't really know what I was getting into. I just kind of jumped in with both feet and uh, said, okay, let's let's do it and see what happens. And uh, I was fortunate enough that my grandparents lived just an hour away from a community or actually a satellite college from uh, University of South Carolina. And that was in Beaufort. So I started in a small campus setting, which really helped me to transition from my lifestyle in Germany to the lifestyle in the U.S. Um, being, being a foreigner and still having a really heavy accent at that time um, made actually all the students want to talk to me and, and take care of me and learn who I am, where I'm from, and help me out. And so I was fortunate enough that I had a lot of help from a lot of different students and even the teachers at that satellite campus. And it, it you know, it was pretty easy actually to get integrated into this kind of school system here in the U.S. That's cool. Um, like, and in moving, did you have, you know, before you actually arrived, where did you have a lot of fear about kind of what would happen when you got there? Or, you know, did you, was it more you know, you kind of just jumped in two feet forward and kind of went, well, my grandparents are there. Like I'll, I'll be looked after enough. Uh, <laughs> you know, I'll sort of figure it out as I go. Yeah. Or... yeah. You know, there wasn't that much fear. honestly, when I sat on the airplane pulling out of the terminal, the, the biggest feeling I had was all of a sudden just sadness. Cause that was the point I realized, Oh my God, I'm, I'm leaving everybody behind all my friends, the life that I knew, um, and you know, I was doubting myself, do, are you really doing the right thing? But, uh, luckily it happened on the plane, so there was no way back. So, <laughs> you know, I just, <laughs> I just said, okay, you're, you're here now. Let's deal with it and, you know, give it one year, try see how it works. You can always go back. And well, one year turned into uh, 30 years, I guess I'm almost here. Yeah. So it's kind of crazy. <laughs> Mad. Uh, I, you know, late 80s there was no internet so there was not much you no, were to do to like keep track of people other than you know the random phone call every now and then or writing letters yeah exactly writing letters a lot of people probably don't even know what that is anymore <laughs> yeah exactly uh, i was saying to somebody on one of the podcasts i remember uh calling my now wife from a phone booth uh in yosemite like when we first met and i was like wow that's a sign of the times <laughs> yeah no kidding <laughs> Yeah, so just jumped in and went for it. That's amazing. See where it lead, leads me. So uh, Tobin gave me very little uh, information about you other than to say uh, he started the whole thing with former Navy SEAL. So how did, <laughs> where was the transition between, you know, going to college in South Carolina and, you know, ending up in the Navy? 
Yeah, it's all pure accidental, really. Uh, I never thought I would join the military when I came to the States. Um, so what happened is one of the things I realized in Germany, education was basically free. Coming here to the States, oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> Even back then, it seemed, seemed very expensive. Yeah, not so and, free. Uh, not so free. I'm like, wow, I had no idea. So <laughs> the first couple of years, I just basically worked every time I was off from college, you know, had a had a job at a grocery store or a warehouse, you know, whatever I could find just to make some money to to pay for the tuition because I did not want to rely on my parents or my grandparents. I wanted to be independent. So doing that the first two years was fine, but I learned through college, through uh, my counselor, that you can apply for grants and scholarships. I started doing that and uh, was able to get some grants and an engineering scholarship which was amazing, and it covered half of the tuition. So there was still that other half that I had to worry about. Well, when I was in my junior year, I just saw a flyer in the dormitory that the Navy ROTC is looking for engineer students to join their nuclear engineering program. I'm like, well, hmm, let me learn more about that. That could be the opportunity to get free money and even you know, after college have, have a job. So I went there and applied and... Um, uh, and I got it. So I, I joined Navy ROTC on the basis of becoming a nuclear engineer. But that kind of changed about a year later when I realized as a nuclear engineer, you're going to be there either on a ship for six to nine months or on a submarine for six to nine months. And um, being the, the adventurous type, that just didn't seem so enticing for me. Right, right. So, you know, but I already accepted a scholarship. I was already getting the money and I was already RTC. I'm like, well, what else can I do? And uh, as it happens, there was a small group of RTC students uh, at my college that uh, had this club called Navy SEAL Preparatory Training Team. I'm like, whoa, what's that all about? And so I talked to them and said, yeah, well, we work out every day in the morning before class and we're gearing up to be physically strong and we want to go to go to SEAL school and become uh, Navy SEALs. And I didn't know what a Navy SEAL was at that point. So I read up about it and then uh, it seemed <laughs> very challenging and very adventurous and kind of fit, fit who I am. Um, so I basically told my ROTC counselor once I realized what the Navy SEAL is and what they do and what kind of lifestyle it would be that I'm interested in. I want to switch from becoming a nuclear engineer and put my application to go to SEAL training. So that's kind of how it all happened. And um, I got accepted before I graduated and went straight to uh, BUDS, to basic underwater demolition SEAL training in Coronado after college. Man. I'm starting to see a pattern here, Harold. Like there, you know, you <laughs> seem to just kind of go, oh, that looks cool. I'll do that. And you just go. <laughs> yeah, that's true. There's no plan, that's for sure. Uh, that's mad. Because, uh, I mean, I guess, and maybe actually in that sense, uh, certainly with the SEALs, maybe not having sort of a mythology built up in your head around it made it easier to to kind of just go, oh, that looks really interesting. I, I, I am interested in that. And not to have kind of a fear built up around it. Would you say that might be true? Yeah, I think that's very true. I mean, I, I read some books about it, but it was all all stuff that kind of made seals look, you know, I don't know, grandorized, you know, that they can do anything they want. They're really fit and mentally strong. 
um, so all positive things. And I, I did not see the aspect of, well, how do you become a seal? You know, what do you have to go through and what do you have to endure to actually get to that stage? That, that wasn't my concern. I just wanted to see the end result. So yes, I, I did not have any fear because I didn't look into what it takes to become a seal. And so what does it take? Uh, what does it take? Um, mental stamina. Um, at first I thought physical fitness going into training, but the, what they really do is they tear you down physically anyway, and then they build you back up. So it doesn't matter how strong or how weak you are, you know, they're, they're going to get you to where they need you, uh, physically. So the toughest part was really the mental aspect. Um, everything they throw at you and you have to deal with, and also the, uh, always being in a cold, wet environment. You know, you think the training is in, in San Diego, so it's going to be warm and, you know, it won't be cold. But that Pacific Ocean, man, it's so cold. And uh, we spend a lot of hours there. And uh, it, it really, you have to be just mentally tough, focused, and really want to be there. And they give you plenty of opportunities to say, you know what, you shouldn't be here. Why don't you come and have a cup of coffee and a donut and quit? You know, they try to entice you at any, any moment where they see a weakness to, for you to quit. So you just got to be really strong and know that, Hey, this is really what you want to do. And I mean, is that like my, my next question was going to be kind of what's the self-talk in those situations? Like, how did you convince yourself to stay? Was it just as simple as, you know, you said you really wanted to do this now, you know, now you're getting it now you have to be here or, you know, was there something else kind of behind that that was driving you to really want to stay in it? I think there were two things. So, um, as an officer, if you go through BUDS SEAL training and you don't make it, you get rolled into the regular fleet into the Navy. Mm. So basically you're, you're, you're going to be on a ship, you know, that's your job. So one of them I already knew before, that's why I switched in the first place instead of being a nuclear engineer, you know, being a SEAL, because I didn't want to be on a ship for right. months on end. So that was a good mod- motivation. And, and the other way I motivated myself is anytime somebody quit along the lines, you know, I said, good for you. You don't belong here. You go. I'm staying. Thank you for, you know, giving up because I'm not going to give up. So I, I kind of got strength from other people quitting. Interesting. Um, and I mean, you know, I suppose like you did say, uh, you know, lots of people are leaving, they give you ample opportunities. Um, you know, was there a point at which you were kind of, you, you're like, like, what was the lowest point? Was there a point at which you were really tempted to take that offer? You know, um, there was once on a, on a long swim, we did like a seven mile swim. And, uh, when you swim, you swim with a swim buddy. So you're always with a buddy, whatever you do. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, that day I just felt physically and mentally drained and the swim seemed so much harder than I envisioned. And I've done, we've done longer swims before that swim and I had no problems, but for some reason I was struggling really hard and my mind was just starting to to turn and spin, you know, and, and thinking, Hey, maybe you're not made for this and maybe you should quit, you know? Um, so I had those thoughts for a few moments and then, um, I don't know, something else took over and said, you know what? Yeah, you will have some weak moments and you just got to get through it. That's one of the things, you know, they, they want to see that, uh, even if you have a weak moment that you can still perform and, and still, still survive basically. And so 
I kind of talked myself out of quitting and keep kept on swimming. And then after that, you know, that was a, really the only low point or the time where I thought about, you know, quitting the SEAL training. Very cool. So I guess, you know, you finish with buds, you finish with SEAL training. Um, you know, what happens next? Because I think, you know, there's documentaries out there on Netflix and things that kind of show you what some of buds looks like. And, but they never really talk about necessarily what happens right after that. Are you, you know, are you immediately deployed? Do you just join a group and you're kind of waiting around to be deployed? How does it work? Yeah. So before you finish uh, buds, uh, they ask you the three, three preference, where you want to go, whether you want to be on the East coast or West coast, you know, what team you want to go to back when I, uh, went through buds, the teams were based on, um, geographical location so actually my first choice was to go uh, to seal team two because back then they were uh, stationed uh out of the east coast but then forward deployed in germany i'm like wow what a great fit you know i grew up in germany i speak german so that's what i want to do um but i guess what it comes down to ultimately is manpower and where they need to fill spots so when when I graduated, Germany or SEAL Team Two had already the the quotas for the officers, so I was put into SEAL Team Three, which is on the West Coast. Um, so once they designate where you're gonna go, then you go to that team, and then you have more advanced training. Can be up to four to six months of advanced training, uh, and then after that training, um, you have to go in front of the board and they ask you tons of questions about uh, SEAL tactics, um, you know, different scenarios, what would you do? And then based on how you answer those, how you respond, they will either say, okay, you're qualified to be SEAL now and we'll give you the Trident. Or they say, you know what, you're just not ready yet. You need more training and then uh, go from there. Very interesting. Um, and you know, I guess, how long were you a SEAL after that point, I guess, is the best question next. Yeah, so I was, uh, by the time I went to BUDS and by the time I got out, I was in for four and a half years. Okay. And so did you, you know, finish after your four and a half years? Was it like a situation where you, you know, to kind of earn back your scholarship and things, you gave them four and a half years and then that was the end of it? Yeah, exactly. So you have to serve for a certain amount of time. For me, it was four years. So I stayed in four and a half years. And then I just, I just kind of knew I wasn't, I didn't want to have a military career. It was something that I was intrigued and uh, by to become a SEAL and see how it goes. But I, th- I don't think I was really ever going to be a, a career military officer. So after I put in my time, I, I was kind of ready to see what my next challenge would be. And what was that next challenge? Um, yeah, so the next challenge was actually, uh, it's, it's kind of coincidental. Right before I got out, I did my first adventure race in the Middle East. I did it with a, with a Navy team, and we went to United Arab Emirates for a five-day staged uh, adventure race in the desert. Didn't know anything about adventure racing. My background then was triathlons. Um, but they invited me to go, and, and I, I went, and man, that, that sport just intrigued me so much. And after that race, we actually won the race. And after that race, I'm like, you know what, I'm getting out soon of the Navy and I could see myself doing more of these races and see where it goes, you know, see if I can, uh, actually 
become a quote-unquote professional, which weren't that many back in the, those, in the days. But I said, you know what, I'm going to give it a try and see where, where I end up. Very interesting. So you went from like cold and wet to hot and dry in the middle of the desert in the race. <laughs> yeah, that was pretty crazy. <laughs> but it was fun. So staged adventure races, you know, I kind of, um, you know, on an earlier episode with Tobin, we talked about like just generally what an adventure race is, but like a staged adventure race, what maybe is the difference between, you know, some of the shorter races and what a staged race looks like? Yeah. So a stage race. So the first race that I did, for example, there were five days and each day had a start and finish. And, uh, depending on the day, it could have been the mountain biking, running, paddling, maybe some orienteering, so each day is, is structured a little bit different, but you know you will have a start and a finish on that same day. And then you take a rest at night, and then you start over the next day. Whereas a, like an expedition-type race or a continuous race is you have a start, and let's say you have to cover a distance of 150 miles, and you'll finish however long it takes without any breaks. So it's up to you when you... You choose to sleep when you choose to eat, um, you know, whereas stage racing, you know, you'll eat during the day while you're racing, but then at night, you know, you're going to rest, you put your feet up, you can have a great meal, a big meal and get some rest. So and it's really different approach. Yeah. Very different. Like, do you have a preference on one or the other? Like, do you enjoy one more than the other? Or are you better, you know, do you feel like you're better suited to one or the other? I, I, I actually enjoyed both of them because they both had their own unique challenges uh for the stage races you had to be fast uh every day was basically you're competing in an ironman you're trying to do the best you can and as fast as you can and then you get a great rest and do it over the next day uh, then when you go to expedition races it's a totally different strategy you're going to go slower because you know you're not going to get as much rest and you want to be as strong and as as strong as possible for duration. So for those kind of type of races, you really have to plan more. You have to see what kind of nutrition you bring with you out there. Uh, you got to cater to your team, uh, see how the weakest link is doing at any time, if we need to take a rest or not. Um, you got to be more strategic and tactical in those expedition races. And whereas in the in the uh, stage races, it's like, okay, we know we got to go as fast as we can. And if we bonk at the end of the day, that's fine because we can get rest at night. But if you bonk during an expedition race, then the race is pretty much over for you. Yeah. It sounds mental. <laughs> I've never done any yeah. adventure racing and it just sounds totally insane to me. <laughs> <laughs> it is insane. And you know, I... What I enjoyed a lot was the team aspect of it. So you're not an individual. You have three other people with you. And so, you know, you're catering to other people too. And in any moment in time when you're out there racing, you got to see, okay, what's what's the best way to handle the situation for the team? Not for me, but for the team. And sometimes you have to give up your ego, you know, and, and just be a team player and, and do what's best for the team, not what's best for you. Cool. So you spent, um, how long were you? Cause I mean, you did eventually arrive at the place where you were a professional adventure racer. Is that right? Yes. Yes. I did like three years after I did my first race. Um, I was a sponsored athlete, uh, well with a team and we raced professionally all over the world and I, uh, competed from 98 to 2005. So seven, eight years. Wow. And that entire time you were like basically on the road most of the time, kind of going race to race. 
Yeah, pretty much. You know, when, if I wasn't on the road, I was just training with my, my teammates out here. I'd love to hear a little bit more about uh, more about that lifestyle because you know I, I've had various friends who were kind of at different points, either you know professionally sponsored kayakers or climbers, and I think those stories are always really interesting because from the outside looking in, it's sort of like you know the uh, the best possible world for somebody that's really into any any sport to be into is like that professional lifestyle. Um, is it all it's cracked up to be? Like, is it as fun and, and kind of carefree as it sounds? Or is it actually, you know, <laughs> are there a lot of different aspects of it that a lot of people don't really take into account? Yeah, there, there's different aspects of it. I mean, I, I choose, I chose this route because I really, I, I loved the adventure of adventure racing, just being out there. Um, there were some sacrifices, um, you know, financially, even though you're a sponsored athlete, it doesn't pay that well. It all depends on, your performance or your team's performance so um to the payout depended on that so um it wasn't that much money to to be made even with the price money that was out there at that time uh so my sacrifice was really my my living situation you know i always had a roommate or two roommates uh to to afford where I was living. So, cause I didn't have any other income. Uh, there was no time to, to go to work somewhere else. Cause either I trained or I was on the road racing. So, so you had to look at, okay, how I can, how can I make this work with the money that's coming in from racing and, and still live and not go into debt. So one of the sacrifices is you, you won't be able to live by yourself. You have to have roommates. You're going to minimize going out to bars or to restaurants. You're going to cook a lot at home, you know, so you're going to cut wherever you can to save money. And so you can enjoy the travels and the racing. And I mean, for you, for you, I guess, I'm guessing you were in it for seven years. I'm guessing that those trade-offs were worth it for, for that, you know, for at least the majority of that time period. Yeah, I mean, there were so many magical moments racing. Uh, you, what's so cool about adventure racing is you, it takes you to spots all over the world that, as a normal tourist, you wouldn't see. You know, it's it's the hinterland. It's the backcountry where you're going to go, not the touristy spots. And it was just amazing whether it was the landscape, the scenery, or just the, the exchange of the people that lived here. Like, we raced in Brazil one year and uh, in the northeast of Brazil, and we got in touch with villagers. The village was like five huts, you know. We had to spend a few hours there to sleep, and they, they were poor. They had nothing, but, man, they enjoyed being in hospital. They gave us anything they could give us to support us. They let us sleep on their beds. It's just amazing to see, you know, the, the kindness that you can, that people have out there in the middle of nowhere. So there's definitely some great experiences. So, you know, it's amazing that, you know, you get to go and see all these different places. Are there, you know, are there mental aspects of adventure racing that you kind of found yourself hooked on after a certain period of time? Or, you know, does it, did it start to kind of wear down over time and you just kind of uh, sort of became immune to it over time? Mm, I don't know if there were mental challenges. I, I just think each each race was different and it had their own challenges. And that's, I think, what really intrigued me about racing adventure races is that there was not one race that was the same. You know, I came from a triathlon background, like I said, and, you know, it's always the same race, the same distance, and 
not really new challenges except you and the time. But in adventure racing, anything can happen. You could be on a bike ride. Uh, so something can break down on your bike. You don't have the parts to fix it, but you got to figure out how to MacGyver it and fix it so the whole team can move on, you know. Or somebody gets injured, you know, you got to make the de decision. Well, is the injury grave enough to quit or can we fix it somehow and keep moving on? So right. there, there's consistently and constantly there's just challenges that you just have to deal with. And I think that's what really drew me to adventure racing. Um, you know, just overcome, always figure out what's what's the best thing to, to move on, what's the best thing to do to move on. Um, and I think I still, you know, throughout life kind of have the same mentality. Whatever obstacles are thrown at me, I'm like, okay, this is what I'm dealing with. What can I do to circumvent that obstacle to move on? That's a really interesting point. And I think that's one that, um, you know, I've already noticed quite a lot of similarities in, in several of the guests. And, you know, one of my, uh, good friends, Joan, who was our second guest on the podcast was talking about, you know, sailing boats on her own and, you know, having, having rudders break off. Yeah. Having rudders break off the boat and like just being there on, you know, by herself on a boat in the middle of the ocean and just going, yeah. well, got to fix this, got to figure out how to make this work so I can continue. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Do you think that that should be, yeah, go ahead. I was just, I was just going to say, especially being by herself, you know, in, in right. my case, at least I had teammates to depend on and they might have an idea that I didn't think of, but in her situation, it's just all her and it's a lot of pressure, but I'm sure also, um, a challenge that she looked forward to. Otherwise she wouldn't have done it. And, uh, it's amazing that she does stuff like that. Yeah. I mean, I think it's in general, one of those, uh, it is one of those qualities of people that enjoy kind of putting themselves out there, uh, have to have in a sense is that sort of both resiliency, but also kind of, um, you know, that ability to kind of figure out stuff on the fly or, or enjoy having to figure out stuff on the fly. Mm -hmm. Right. So you adventure raced, uh, up until about, uh, 2005, what kind of, what precipitated you wanting to get out of adventure racing? Uh, a couple of things. One, I have to be honest, I got really burned out uh, racing for seven, eight years, doing, I don't know, 10 to 15 major races a year. I just got burned out. And then uh, towards the mid-2000s, uh, mid um, adventure racing in the U.S. kind of dropped off. Sponsors pulled out. It wasn't that big of a thing anymore. And uh, once sponsors drop out and TV drops out, there wasn't that much money in there. So... You know, I, I couldn't uh, earn as much as I had in the past. So so I had to make a decision. I'm burned out. There's not that much money in it anymore. So should I keep going on or stop? And so I decided to stop. I, I just needed a break. And actually, for three years after that, I didn't do much of sports except for yoga. I'm like, you know what? This body needs to heal. I need to refocus and it gets stronger inwardly and uh, so i just totally took three years off not doing any kind of sports and regrouped interesting um that's another kind of theme that i've uh, already come across from several people is that a lot of these you know when you start to look at things over a longer time scale you know you can be hyper focused on something for a certain period of time but you know very few people can keep up a sustained effort over an entire lifetime in a single sport um yeah 
did you feel like that kind of break from adventure racing and kind of, uh, you know, period in yoga helped you kind of move into the next phase or was it just, you really needed to rest more than anything? Yeah, no, it definitely both aspects. I mean, I definitely needed a rest, but it also helped me that break to moving in a different phase. Um, I wasn't sure what I would do next as far as my athletics was concerned. So I kind of just went with how my body felt and what's, what's the next interest would be. And, uh, after the three years, I'm like, you know what, I'm, I'm done doing yoga. Let's, let's, let's run again. So I started running and then I just started signing up for smaller races, uh, you know, half marathons then marathons, but all trail on trail, not on road. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I, I started to enjoy doing that physical activity again. And then I knew, you know what, I'm, I'm just going to pursue running now. And that's my new thing. And you did not stick with the uh, half marathons and marathons. You quickly <laughs> went up to some much longer distances. I guess, tell me a little bit about the progression kind of uh, going from, okay, I've run a couple of, you know, half trail marathons, trail marathons, and and then deciding, okay, I want to go longer. Yeah, it was a kind of natural progression. And uh, as you already can see a theme, it, I, I like to challenge myself. So once I knew I can do a marathon on the trail, I'm like, you know, what's the next next distance? And then I heard about 50Ks. I'm like, well, that's that's only, what, six, seven miles longer than a marathon. I can do that. So I jumped into the 50K. And and then I heard about 100Ks. And then the next one was a 100-miler. I'm like, well, I can do a 100-miler too. And then, you know, it was an easy progression for me. But honestly, it was because of my background. Uh, my I've, I've done... 600 mile races and adventure racing, uh, during seal training, you know, we had to do a lot of stuff with weight and and long distance and endurance. So mentally I was, I was set to go and push myself and do longer distances and running too. And I had the experience not for running per se, but for different distance, uh, different, uh, disciplines. And, uh, so I knew I was capable of doing it. And I had to discipline discipline also to train for those kind of distances. And how do you train for those type of distances? I mean, you know, is it just incredibly high volume of running all the time? Or is it, you know, are there specific things that kind of outweigh other bits of the training that make, make you know, 100 miles possible and, and potentially even enjoyable? Yeah, at first I thought it was all high miles. You just, okay, you got to run a lot to do a 100 miler. But then I realized pretty quick, it's just going to burn you out if you just do a lot of miles and you're not focused on what type of training to do. So I realized early on, you know, I got to have a program or just just like with any other sport, it has to be some kind of an approach to to maximize your efforts um, at, at race day. So I learned that, you know, uh, to build up, you, you know, once you start, let's say you're looking for a hundred mile or two and a half months down the road. So so you start training um, two and a half months out. Go, uh, let's say the first week you do 30 miles. The second week you do 40 miles. So you kind of build up. And then four weeks before your big race, you might have a 100-mile week. And then you start tapering off. So there's a science to it. And then also, depending on is the 100-miler a flat 100-miler or is it in the mountains? Is there a lot of elevation? So if there's a lot of elevation, then you got to focus on a lot of hiking, a lot of hills, you know, and get your legs stronger for that too. So I'm going to name a couple of races, and I'm probably going to get these completely out of uh, chronological order here. but. Uh, 
you know, for for people that know a little bit about ultras, uh, I think all of these are pretty um, world class, pretty recognizable. Uh, you know, the Barkley marathons. That one just mm-hmm. seems like uh, totally mental. Um, <laughs> I remember seeing a video <laughs> on YouTube about Barkley, and I was just like, "This is insane." Um, and then there's the Bigfoot 200 miler, which obviously, you know, you think about 200 miles, it's a very, very long way. Um, and so Uh, we'll come back to that one. And then there's the ultra trail de Mont Blanc, which, uh, is potentially maybe one of the, you know, it is one of the most famous ultra races in the world. Um, yeah, I believe so too. Yeah. That basically rings Mont Blanc goes all the way around it, which is pretty, pretty incredible. Um, you know, I suppose once you start to get into that kind of elite level of, uh, you know, these races like Barkley is very difficult to get into just because they're, you know, they're very closed about, you know, you can't just like sign up and pay your entry fee. You've kind of got to be selected through the lottery and that sort of thing. Um, you know, what is it about these races that's such a draw for you? Uh, you know, 200 miles, the ultra trail, Barkley marathons. Is it just finding that you know, looking for that thing that challenges you more than what you've had before? Or is there something about, you know, being part of this maybe mythology of ultra running? Yeah, I think primarily it's really challenging myself. You know, once I, let's say, complete a hundred miler, then I look, look for what's next, you know, what's the next best challenge. And, uh, and you hear about these races out there once you become uh, involved in in the sport of ultra running you hear about these races like Barkley marathon ultra uh, trail de mont blanc um and you're like wow that sounds interesting let's look look it up and see if i can apply for it and go for it you know so the barclays that that was a tough one uh, like you said there's not a lot of information out there there's a lot of misinformation <laughs> about the race out there and um you know, you got to figure out an approach to first of all, see, well, how do I apply in the first place? Who, who do I need to talk to? How can I find out all that information? So it's it's a challenge in itself just to, to get your name onto that list, you know, and I kind of like that. But then the, the race itself, it's it intrigued me because uh, it's not only ultra running, it, it puts a lot of different elements into that race. Uh, with my background of adventure racing, I thought I was a good candidate to go out there and try it because uh, it's orienteering. You know, you have a map and compass and you're on foot on on this insane terrain where you have a lot of elevation gain and loss. Um, so there's so many different aspects that you're going to get challenged at. And uh, I really was intrigued by that race and I was able to get in there three years ago and and try my best to go out there, and it was it was very challenging, and it's both physically and mentally challenging, uh, not not only physically. Yeah, it's um, it's 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 an impressive one. Uh, I would like encourage anybody listening that hasn't seen. Uh, there's like a YouTube doc- documentary, kind of a short one that uh, I think covers Jared Campbell, one of his like you know, years where he first finished the race. Uh, and then I yeah. think now I just saw Netflix the other night. There's a, there's a whole documentary about it as well. I don't know if it's the same one or not, but, um, yeah, it's a different one. The Netflix one is really, really good, good to watch. Cool. Yeah. It's on my list for sure. But, uh, it's, it's a very impressive race for sure. Um, and so y- the first time you got into that race, you, uh, you kind of completed the fun run, which is what they call, I guess, the shorter version, uh, just out of kind of the uh, prescribed time limit. Is that right? 
Yeah, that's right. So you, the fun run to be, to consider finishing a fun run, you have to do it in forty hours, and I, I finish in little under thirty minutes after that. Um, you know, it's I'm I'm happy with the result. Bottom line, it's you against the course, and the the course, as you can tell, as history can tell, uh, usually wins. Uh, since since the start of the Barclays, there's only been fifteen finishers. So, and Barclay's been around since the nineties, I believe, or late, late eighties. It's probably the lowest so like finisher ratio of any race in the world. I believe so for sure. Incredible. Um, it's, it is incredible. And it's always fun, even when you don't make it into the race to be on the sideline and just follow the, the Twitter feed on race week and see what's going on. And it's, it's, it's an amazing event. And, uh, Yes, there's still a lot of mystery around it, and I like that about it. It's it's something you know that intrigues people, and it's not easy to get in. Yeah, that's fun. I mean, like there's that fun aspect as well, like just the fact that uh, it is a bit secret, it is a bit hard to get into. It's not, you know, it's definitely not a given. So that's great. So the Bigfoot two hundred miler, um, you finished third in that race. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. Yep. And uh, I this, I was sort of astounded by the statistics, so I'm going to have to read it out here. You finished in 70 hours and 32 minutes, um, and you slept, I think, two hours. Is that right? Yeah, I slept two hours, correct. In 70 hours. What, is that, what <laughs> does that do to you? I mean, I, like, I can't even imagine. I kind of, I'm like, oh, wow, I've been awake, you know, like the longest I've ever was awake for, you know, 40, 40 hours or something. But like two hours and 70 is a long time. Uh did you, I mean, did you feel okay? Like what happens physiologically at that level? Um, so I kind of broke down the race, uh, before I went there and see what, what should my strategy be? They had four or five different sleep stations where you can take a nap before Mm -hmm. you go back out. And I said, well, I've done a hundred miler before, so I know I can do a hundred miles without sleep. Um, so I was looking into the sleep stations after 100 mile, and there was one around, uh, I believe, 120 miles. I'm like, that's that's where I want to sleep. I want to sleep there for three hours. That's my plan. And so, sure enough, by the time an hour before I got to that aid station, I was actually getting tired. And so I knew that was the, the right strategy. And I got to the aid station and I uh, told my crew, you know, I'm ready to sleep three hours and wake me up when that time is up. Um, but it, I ended up sleeping only two hours cause I woke up after two hours and was wide awake. I'm like, you know what? No, no sense in staying here. If you're wide awake, let's, let's keep on going. So my crew was a little bit surprised. I kind of woke them up. I said, let's go. <laughs> um, but it worked out, you know, two hours was enough for me to continue on the rest of the course without any more sleep. I do have to say, um, the, about, 15, uh, 20 miles before the finish, I got really tired. It was a night night section, um, and I could feel the sleep deviation in my in my system. Uh, luckily, I had pacers at that time, and uh, also another thing that happened at that time, I was in fifth place, and there were a couple people in front of me. So even though I was sleepy, I said, you know what, I got to push on. Maybe I can catch some of these people before I finish. 
And so I had my pacer just run in front of me and just yell out every obstacle. I just followed blindly like in half sleep. And eventually I woke, woke up again and I was able to finish the race strong. But you do have those low moments and uh, it's your call. You know, it depends on what's going on at that time, whether you should take a nap and sleep or you should push on and, and try to get over that sleepiness. I mean, is that like part of the strategy really for you? You just know your body so well at this stage that you're kind of like, I, I know what I need at this stage. Or, you know, you just have learned to kind of tune into, uh, you know, whether you need sleep or food or, you know, just a rest or whatever it is. Yes, uh, it's definitely a lot of experience. I mean, I've been uh, racing like endurance events for over 20 years. So you learn a lot about your body. When I first got into endurance events, I trained with heart rate monitor and was really scientific about it. But now it's like all by feel and how my body's doing at the time. And, and also uh, a good planning, you know, knowing that I need a certain amount of calories per hour, knowing that I need electrolytes per hour, you know, having a, having a good plan and sticking with it. And then, um, you know, if something happens that's out of the ordinary, you just have to deal with it. Very interesting. Um, so the Ultra Trail de Mont Blanc, um, which I guess there's like several different races and, and maybe you can just give like a quick, uh, you know, one minute overview of kind of what the Ultra Trail de Mont Blanc is for, for those people that don't have any idea about what it is. Yeah, so the UTMB, the, the biggest event is really the 100-miler. It, it circumvents Mont Blanc. It starts in Chamonix and ends in Chamonix. And that's really the big one that everybody wants to <laughs> apply for. Um, usually you get 2,500 slots. We're talking 2,500 starters for a trail run, which is insane. Um, don't see that anywhere else in the world. And you probably have ten to 15,000 people that apply for one of those spots. So it's a very well-known uh, event. But part of the UTMB, they also have other distances. So if you don't want to do a 100-miler, they have like 119K, which is called a TDS. Or they have a 100K, which is the CCC. Uh, and they also have a like a team event. Two or three people can do a, the PTL, which is... Uh, over days, I think it's like four or five days, depending on how fast you are, where you have to navigate and get to the finish. So they offer different distances, which is cool because not everybody wants to do a hundred miler. Um, but like you said, it's it's world renowned. Everybody wants to go to Chamonix and do one of those races, and it's just an incredible atmosphere. They really have the organization nailed down. You know, you have two thousand five hundred people at the start running down the streets of Chamonix. And then you're hitting the trails and you look in front of you, behind you, and you, you just see it's like an ant, a line of ants just going up the mountain. That's pretty amazing. That's so cool. I mean, like Chamonix, uh, you know, I've done a lot of climbing and stuff and Chamonix is Mecca for, you know, alpinism. And so it's, there's a lot of history and myth and, you know, lore about the place. And so it's, uh, I'm sure for ultra running as well, it's just an incredible place to be. Oh, it's incredible. The trails are amazing. And, uh, well, the one thing about Chamonix, you know, you're always going to go up first because yeah. Chamonix is in this, this big valley. And uh, to, get it, to get to the trails, you got to go up. <laughs> so a lot of climbing. But once you're on top on one of those ridges, it's just amazing views, spectacular views. And I, I love that place. And like you said, it's it's a mecca not only for climbing, for paragliding, for runners, for, for anybody. And uh, the food is so good, too. <laughs> yeah, also very good. 
Very cool. Um, so I guess, you know, if someone, you know, if someone was wanting to get into adventure racing or ultras or even just like half trail marathons and, you know, didn't really have a background in doing a lot of, uh, endurance sports, you know, how would you suggest someone even get started there? Is there, you know, would you say just like start with a, you know, simple half marathon, start with a road marathon, start with, you know, something really, really small, or would you say just, you know, train and then dive into like a bigger race because you know, you can do it. Yeah. For most people, I would say just start small, especially trail running is so different than road running. Um, road running is kind of monotonous. I mean, it's always the same stepping pattern, you know, it's flat as far as there's no rocks or branches or anything to, to try to avoid it's There's not a lot of mental thinking whereas trail running it's exhausting especially when you're not used to it because not only are you dealing with the trail and the terrain you're dealing with obstacles and you got to mentally look forward okay where can i place my foot for the next step Uh, so there's constant thinking going on in trail running whereas just on the road it's it's kind of monotonous as far as the mental aspect is concerned so if anybody wants to get into trail running, I, I would advise to start training on trail, see if you like it, you know, doing runs on trail, mix it up, um, and then just pick a local race. Uh, it could be what, whatever they're comfortable with. You know, it could be uh, usually a half marathon is probably one of the shorter races. So starting with a half marathon trail race and see if you like it and then challenge yourself to at some point go to the next level, you know, do like a full marathon or a 50 K. And if anybody needs any uh, suggested races, they can come and visit me. I've got, there's several trail marathons <laughs> here during the year that are fantastic. Yeah, there's, you're right. There's so many trail races out there all over the U S. So, I mean, whether you live in California or in Tennessee or North Carolina, you will be able to find a trail race that suits your needs. Yeah. Cool. So I want to be kind of respectful of your time and we've gone for a good while here now, I guess, um, I've got a few questions that I like to ask, uh, pretty much everybody and you are no different. So I will ask you these questions and I'd love (laughs) to hear your answers. Uh, so what does adventure mean to you? Um, in one sentence, living out of the box, <laughs> uh, to simplify it. But adventure is is just anything that's not the norm that maybe not many people have done. And you're out there, you're you're exploring that possibility, but also exploring what your body and your mind is capable of doing. You're stepping outside of your perceived boundaries. You know, stepping outside of the cultural or societal boundaries, and you're doing something that's kind of scary, you know, (laughs) exciting at the same point too, but it's something new and you're just jumping into it and and see where it leads you. And that's kind of an adventure. Um, you know, there, there's somewhat of a plan, but once you're in it, not really, you're just following what, what's going to be placed in front of you and, and go with it. Sort of like you said before, just kind of taking, taking each challenge as it comes and, and working your way through it. Exactly. And, you know, so if that's how you define adventure, what, you know, why would you think adventure is important in, in your life or, you know, in general, why should more people try and kind of put themselves outside of that box? Um, you know, I think it just spices up life a little bit. It seems uh, a lot of people kind of get into this, this work and life rut where it's 
always the same pattern. But just just go out and, and try an adventure. Get out of the the, the same same lifestyle you know do something new and and see if you like it and and with that it can open so many other doors to what you may be interested in that you haven't even thought about you know it's like when i started let's say with adventure racing i really didn't know what mountain biking was you know i just kind of jumped into it i didn't know what orienteering was i jumped into it and but jumping into it and kind of taking control, you learn not only the discipline, but you learn about yourself and your capabilities and what you can actually do. Uh, a lot of people nowadays, I don't know, kind of sell themselves short because they just don't realize their potential. And adventure will show you what potentials you may have. And I think that's pretty exciting for anybody who wants to go out there and do an adventure. And I just heard you mention discipline, and it's something that's kind of, uh, you know, I've heard the word a few times now through our conversation. Is there, you know, do you feel like you have to, you know, be very disciplined in order to kind of put yourself in adventurous situations? Or is it just one of those things that once you start to get into this kind of life of adventure, you know, being more disciplined allows you to kind of get better at what you're doing? Um. That's kind of a tough question, but the discipline comes into, you know, yes, I encourage anybody to go into an adventure, but uh, I also encourage to be disciplined about it, meaning, you know, kind of plan ahead, see what you're getting into, see what you have to prepare for to get into that adventure. And then once you're in it, you know, making sure you have somewhat of a plan and follow that plan as much as you can, because it helps you to enjoy your adventure more because you're kind of more prepared. That makes sense. Yeah, makes perfect sense. In other words, don't throw yourself in the deep end without actually looking first. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Harold. I guess uh, I will let you go at that. Um, is there anywhere uh, where my listeners can like look you up online, see you on social, give you a shout on you know Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, any of those things? Yeah, Facebook is fine. Just look up my name, Harold Zondel, and I'm happy to uh, you know answer any questions or any advice people might want to have. Excellent. Excellent. All right. Well, thank you again so much for your time. It's been great talking and uh, I'll probably be hitting you up for all sorts of advice from my end. I've just kind of gotten back into um, running there recently and I've been running a couple of trail marathons recently. So I'll, uh, I'll probably be pinging you about discipline and nutrition and all this, all sorts of those things. There you go. That's awesome. I mean, especially where you live right now, there's some good trails out there. Yeah, it's steep. It's real steep. <laughs> it's terrifyingly <laughs> steep, but it's good. It's fun. Awesome. Cool. Listen, thank you so much, Harold. Yeah, thank you, Jeff. I really appreciate it. Hey, everybody. Jeff here again. I just wanted to let you all know that we have finally officially launched on iTunes. So please go and check us out, subscribe to the show. And if you love it, do not hesitate to leave us a review. Um, Even if you don't love it, actually, just leave a review. I'd love to see your feedback and hear what you have to say. And as always, you can always check us out online at livesofadventure.com where we've got the podcast episodes, but I also every now and then write a blog post that you might or might not want to read. So do give us a shout. Let me know what you think. And in the meantime, have a great one and we will see you again soon.